Hello, and welcome to the November 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up, there has been both positive and negative news on the non-discrimination law front for the LGBT community the last few weeks. First up, everyone is talking about the troubling vote in Houston to reject the Equal Rights Ordinance on Tuesday. Can you start there, Art, and then maybe move to the happier news here in New York? Okay, well, Houston uh, actually didn't come as too big a surprise in light of the really strong campaign uh, that was mounted in the media in that city against uh, the Equal Rights Ordinance. The Equal Rights Ordinance was not a narrowly focused gay or transgender or LGBT rights measure. It was actually the city of Houston adopting through its city council a wide-ranging anti-discrimination ordinance that had something like 13 different categories of uh, prohibited discrimination. They included just about any category that any jurisdiction in the U.S., has adopted as a prohibited ground for discrimination. But the entire campaign focused on gender identity in public accommodations and more narrowly access to public restrooms and locker rooms and similar facilities uh, with a scare campaign uh, contending that if this measure became law, uh, then a, a, uh, an operator of such a facility would be fined if they barred a man from using the women's facilities, and, which is a bizarre argument when you think about it. Uh, so actually there was not a big turnout. Only about 28% of the voters turned out, and about 60% of them voted against keeping the ordinance, which means that roughly 17% of the registered voters in Houston repealed the ordinance. So people who say that this is a crushing blow uh, it's a crushing blow in the sense that it's a decisive vote to repeal an ordinance that was going to be helpful to protect a lot of people. Since Houston is the fourth largest city by population in the U.S., that's a lot of people. But on the other hand, it's not as if the voters of Houston rose up in wrath and overwhelmingly rejected the ordinance. It's like 17% of the voters of Houston rose up in wrath. Uh, and in the postmortems, people are asking what went wrong. And most of the argument has focused on the rather restrained and polite nature of the campaign that was waged to protect the ordinance. That uh, uh, some critics have said that the people who were running that campaign were not strong enough in challenging the mistruths. Because when you look at the facts, uh, eight out of the ten largest cities by population in the U.S. outlaw such discrimination. Is there an epidemic of men going into rest, women's restrooms? And no, there's there's no indication that uh, the passage of such legislation leads to an increase in such incidents, or any real direct evidence. And in fact, the uh, the situation with transgender people in restrooms is fraught on the part of the transgender people who fear being assaulted when they go into restrooms. And if you have a transgender woman being forced to go into a men's room. There, that's a setup for, for assault. Uh, so 
it seems to me that something has to be worked out in this area. And the Texas Supreme Court was the one who said there had to be a vote on this. Right. There was a contest about that. Uh, the uh, people who rounded up the petitions and submitted them to the city claimed that they had sufficient valid uh, signatures, but uh, city officials were divided over that. And uh, ultimately, uh, the city was not going to hold the uh, the referendum on a claim that they didn't have enough valid signatures, and they took it to court, and they got an order from the Texas Supreme Court to hold the referendum. And there wasn't a whole lot of time to get a campaign together. No. It was uh, – this, this all moved very quickly. Uh, part of the problem is when we're dealing with a campaign that's initiated by opponents of what is characterized as a, a gay rights measure, they control the timing, of course. Uh, if we do an affirmative referendum, we control the timing. And my favorite example of that is Maine – where uh, an anti-gay referendum, which was held in an off election where there was bad weather and a low turnout, we lost terribly on marriage equality. But we came back a few years later, and with a well-timed, well-plotted campaign as part of a general election ballot, we won by a comfortable margin, Mm -hmm. and we got marriage equality. Uh, So now there's uh, an attorney who was involved in the marriage equality litigation in Michigan, uh, and who has expressed great frustration with the refusal of the legislature to take it up, even though Governor Snyder, a conservative Republican, has intimated that he would sign a bill adding sexual orientation and gender identity to the state's human rights law if the legislature passed it. Uh, but it's just stalled out. So uh, the people who did the marriage equality litigation are now getting organized to do a ballot campaign. They want to put an initiative on the ballot in Michigan to pass a law banning sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Uh, gay rights, uh, organized gay rights groups are urging caution on that and saying you really have to lay the groundwork to win a campaign like that. As we saw uh, several years ago when we did have on, on the same night that President Obama was reelected, we had four very successful referenda uh, on marriage equality, and uh, one of which led a state to enact it and three others either preserving uh, marriage equality that had been legislated or affirmatively uh, enacting it in the the case of Maine. Uh, But those were all very carefully planned, far in advance, with lots of public education, very highly coordinated media campaigns. Uh, It's it's expensive, time-consuming, and labor-intensive to undertake something like this. Uh, So if they do it in Michigan, I hope that they are adequately prepared to do it properly. Um, So that uh, that was the news out of Houston. So... Uh, we still have uh, eight out of the ten largest cities in the U.S. do ban such discrimination. And uh, according to uh, a rundown by the Washington Post that was published on November 4th, the day after the election, they said of the nation's largest 30 cities, only eight lack protection against uh, discrimination uh, on sexual orientation or gender identity. So we've made good progress on the municipal level. But ultimately what we need is the Federal Equality Act uh, to reach those places where politically it's just not feasible even to try. But then the other news uh, that you wanted to talk about. Yes. Uh, The governor of New York made a big announcement at the uh, Empire State Pride Agenda dinner here in New York. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. uh, We've had a frustrating time in New York getting gender identity discrimination covered by state law. Uh, We have a human rights law that goes back decades that banned sex discrimination. And in 2002, it was amended to add sexual orientation. There was a lot of controversy at the time. Uh, Some in the community thought 
that we should be pushing for sexual orientation and gender identity in the same bill. Others, especially Tom Duane in the state senate, who was the lead sponsor of the bill, uh, after counting noses, said, no, if we add gender identity, the legislature isn't ready yet for that. So the issue is, do we hold back until the legislature is ready, or do we go forward with sexual orientation? He decided to go forward. There was uh, some heavy criticism, especially from transgender rights groups, about going forward because they said, we'll never get gender identity on its own. Uh, some states, uh, gender identity has been added on its own. It was added in Massachusetts, although they omitted the public accommodations uh, on that. So now there's a, a debate in Massachusetts about adding public accommodations. Uh, but here in New York, the gender identity non-discrimination bill has been in the legislature for over a decade, and the Assembly has approved it several times, but the Senate has refused to let it come up, even when Democrats briefly controlled the Senate. It just hasn't made headway. Uh, so the governor, uh, I think at least in part inspired by what's happening under Title VII, uh, decided why don't we have the State Division of Human Rights, which has authority under its enabling statute to issue interpretive uh, regulations, why not issue a regulation adopting what has been emerging as a consensus view under Title VII that sex discrimination and gender identity discrimination are conceptually highly related to the extent that we can interpret a sex discrimination ban to cover gender identity. And he took it a step further than I've seen it taken anywhere else. He said the, uh, the medical community sees gender dysphoria as a medical condition uh, or a, a mental health condition that it's, it's a condition that is cured by treatment by uh, having the person uh, transition mm -hmm. uh, to the gender that they identify with. That cures gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the condition of being extremely uncomfortable and dissatisfied at not being uh, physically living in the gender with which one identifies. Mm -hmm. So he says, under our human rights law, we have a very broad definition of a disability. A disability is pretty much any uh, diagnosable medical condition, uh, although traditionally we've referred to medical conditions that can be diagnosed through physical tests of some sort, and uh, gender dysphoria I don't think is diagnosed that way. Uh, but he is contending, and the proposed regulation, which was published in the State Register on November 4th, is saying that people who encounter discrimination because of gender dysphoria may uh, seek a remedy under the disability discrimination provision. And people who experience uh, discrimination because of their gender identity or because they're transitioning, uh, they can seek uh, protection under the sex discrimination provision. Uh, this is a proposed regulation. Uh, I think it's going to be out there for several weeks for people to submit public comments. I hope Legal is submitting a comment. I, I hope the Bar Associations are submitting comments. I think one thing I th interesting that I didn't realize, so the New York State Human Rights Law was passed in 1945. It didn't cover disability back then, or sex. Well, I think it did cover sex, because they've, people have been 45. saying, or maybe these talking points are wrong. I think sex was saying added. They couldn't have possibly meant this in 1945. No, I think, I think sex was added later, but uh, that's not a point I've researched. Yeah. Because sex discrimination as, as a, an area of public policy didn't really emerge until rather later. Uh, when, when the New York Human Rights Law was first passed, I think the main concerns 
were with uh, race and religion and national origin. And I'm not sure it went beyond that. Mm-hmm. I know disability was a an addition during mm-hmm. the 1970s. Uh, but in any event, uh, clearly at the time Title VII was passed in 1964, uh, there was no idea by anyone in Congress that they were banning discrimination against transgender people mm-hmm. or gay people for that matter. Uh, but we have seen a rethinking of the concept of sex under Title VII many times in its history. Uh, Congress actually amended the statute to make it clear that discrimination based on pregnancy would be covered under Title VII after the Supreme Court, in a ridiculous ruling, said that pregnancy and sex are two separate things and uh, that although only women become pregnant, many women don't. and Therefore, discrimination based on pregnancy is not sex discrimination. And Congress said, that's ridiculous. And they amended the statute to make it clear that, uh, that it was sex discrimination. Uh, and then, of course, the Supreme Court in 1989 said that uh, an employer who discriminates against somebody because they fail to conform to sex stereotypes that the employer may have about how men or women should behave or dress or present themselves, uh, that's evidence of uh, prohibited motivation under the sex discrimination provision in Title VII. And since then, more and more federal courts have agreed that sex stereotyping lies at the heart, at the very heart of discrimination based on gender identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we've had decisions from several courts of appeals interpreting different sex discrimination uh, provisions. For example, the Violence Against Women Act and the Fair Credit Act in Title VII Uh, We had an equal protection case from the 11th Circuit involving a transgender public employee. Uh, And in all of these cases, they have used the Supreme Court's sex stereotyping precedent as a means of advancing the idea that this is a form of sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. The EEOC issued an opinion on it in 2012. The Justice Department later issued a similar opinion in the same case. Uh, So it looks like it's becoming pretty well established that at least for purposes of federal law, whether you're talking Title VII, other sex discrimination statutes, or the Equal Protection Clause, uh, federal courts are increasingly seeing this as sex discrimination. So there is a pretty strong body of interpretive law out there that the New York State Division of Human Rights can rely upon. And there are also, I think, a handful of relatively early cases interpreting either the uh, human rights law or the New York City law before it was amended in 2003 they had gender identity, interpreting it to apply to gender identity cases. Uh, So I think a challenge, and we're likely to get some kind of court challenge to this regulation, might not be successful, that the regulation might be upheld as a legitimate interpretation, even though at the time the statute was passed, no one would have thought And we got some good, uh, although this was on gay... uh, on the EEOC's uh, coverage of gay people this summer, but we got some good law out of Alabama this month uh, that that interpretation of Title VII was correct. Yeah, we've well, this has been it's been sort of frustrating for me, you know, as I've been reporting in Law Notes, and uh, our lead story, in fact, in the November issue, uh, points this out. There have been about half a dozen federal district court decisions since that July fifteenth EEOC ruling. Uh, in which uh, lesbian or gay plaintiffs were asserting sexual orientation discrimination claims under Title VII, and the employer was arguing, no, Title VII doesn't apply to sexual orientation. And one of the things they could waive 
is, of course, the EEOC's original interpretation way back from the 1960s when they said, no, Title VII does not apply to sexual orientation discrimination, or as it was called in those days, sexual preference. Uh, So half a dozen cases, and out of those half a dozen cases, only one so far has relied on the EEOC July 15th ruling in the Baldwin case to actually say, yes, sexual orientation discrimination is covered under Title VII. Uh, Part of the problem with this is that federal trial judges are bound by circuit precedent. So if they're in a circuit where there is a court of appeals decision holding to the opposite, they're stuck. They really can't do anything. Uh, But this case arose in the 11th Circuit where, in fact, the court of appeals has not issued an, an opinion directly on point saying that sexual orientation is not covered. Uh, there was a federal district judge in Florida, I point out in this article, who said, well, neither the Supreme Court nor the 11th Circuit has ruled on this question, and I'm not going to. <laughs> you know, I'm going to dismiss this. Uh, but uh, Judge Myron Thompson in the Middle District of Alabama, uh, whose name should be somewhat familiar to people because he's issued several opinions over the years that we've reported on in Law Notes, Most uh, significantly, to my recollection, a a case about how the Alabama prison system was dealing with the issue of AIDS. Very uh, enlightened decision uh, that he had issued. So in this case, he says, because a magistrate judge had, had recommended dismissing the sexual orientation claim, he says, the court rejects the magistrate judge's conclusion that sexual orientation discrimination is neither included in nor contemplated by Title VII. In the 11th Circuit, the question is an open one. And he cited that other case that I just talked uh, or another case uh, that I've reported on recently. This court agrees instead with the view of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that claims of sexual orientation-based discrimination are cognizable under Title VII. Uh, and he discusses the Baldwin case, and he says, the commission explains persuasively why an allegation of discrimination based on sexual orientation is necessarily an allegation of sex discrimination under Title VII. And he cites in support of that an 11th Circuit decision which held that discriminating against an employee because they're engaged in an interracial relationship is race discrimination. Um, He says there's an analogy to be drawn there. Mm -hmm. He also cited to a law review article from 1994 written by Professor Andrew Koppelman of Northwestern University titled why Discrimination Against Lesbians and Gay Men is Sex Discrimination, which was published in the NYU Law Review at the time and was reacting to the Hawaii Supreme Court's decision on marriage equality from 1993, Bear v. Lewin, where the court said that refusing to allow same-sex couples marry is a form of sex discrimination. So there is, uh, you can go back a few decades and you can find this argument that uh, Title VII should be interpreted to cover sexual orientation. So this responds, of course, to the frustration we all share that Congress has refused to advance the Equality Act and had refused to advance the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. We never were able to get both houses of Congress in the same session to vote these things up. Uh, So one way of getting it is by interpretation. I mean, President Obama had relied on similar arguments in uh, adopting an executive order banning sexual orientation discrimination by federal contractors. It's a form of sex discrimination, but uh, we need buy-in from the courts. And now we have at least one district court decision directly buying in to the EEOC's view. And the EEOC has indicated uh, 
that it has put a high priority on establishing judicial precedents uh, on both sexual orientation and gender identity to firm those up. And in fact, uh, the EEOC has taken a case, or actually, actually this case was Lambda. Lambda Legal has taken a case to the Seventh Circuit on this question of whether uh, Title VII covers sexual orientation claims. So we may even have a decision to report in the next few months from the Seventh Circuit. Uh, the Seventh Circuit has previously rejected that argument. So it might be that we can't get a good ruling without an on-bank review. Uh, but this this may end up being one of the big issues that ends up on the Supreme Court's plate in the next term or two. All right, lots to cover there. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll jump across the pond and discuss marriage uh, developments out of Ireland and Italy. We're back to discuss some recent European developments for marriage equality. What happened in Ireland and Italy, Art? Well, we got to think about Ireland in two parts, of course. We have Northern Ireland, which is uh, still a province of the United Kingdom, and we have the Republic of Ireland in the south, which is an independent and autonomous country. Uh, people will remember that in the Republic of Ireland, there was a plebiscite that was held in May in which 62% of the voters supported marriage equality. Uh, that was as a general concept, and it remained for the legislature, the parliament, to uh, make it real with legislation. So the parliament uh, got to work over the summer, but in the meanwhile, there were people who were upset about how the plebiscite was held, and so there were appeals in the Irish courts, and ultimately the Irish courts rejected the appeals. Uh, the argument was made that the government had put its thumb on the scales uh, that the uh, the president and the prime minister and leading government ministers had actively campaigned in favor of marriage equality, uh, necessarily using federal uh, government funds to the extent that they're traveling around and uh, doing this on public time. Uh, so the argument was made that it was unfair somehow. But uh, the idea that public officials can't campaign in support of a particular position was sort of odd. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't get very far in the court. Uh, so the uh, bill, marriage bill 2015, uh, was deliberated in the parliament, and they also had some legislation addressing the issue of adoption, uh, clearing up some of the side issues that you have with marriage equality. And on uh, October 22nd, final approval was given. And on October 29th, the presidential commission Signed, not the president, because the president happened to be on a state visit in the United States. And uh, the idea was they didn't want it to delay any further. The president was in favor of it. They didn't want it to delay any further because they wanted it to be implemented. I mean, the plebiscite was passed in May, and here it is, the beginning of November, and we still don't have marriage equality in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, so after the, uh, the measure was signed by the presidential commission, the last step was for the minister of justice to issue a commencement order to local officials that could begin the process of issuing marriage licenses. And uh, even before the signing took place, as soon as it passed the legislature, uh, the Minister of Justice, Frances Fitzgerald, said she's going to move quickly on that, and she expected that marriages could commence by mid-November. Uh, other news sources had suggested it might take a little longer, but certainly before the end of the year, marriage equality will be in effect in uh, the Republic of Ireland, but not in Northern Ireland, where an attempt to build on the momentum and the public discussion uh, from the plebiscite fell flat 
in the uh, in the uh, Parliament of Northern Ireland. And the funny thing is, uh, measures for marriage equality have been brought up in the past. They always lacked a majority. This time, there was a slight majority, but because of the uh, power-sharing relationship that's been worked out with the different parties in Ireland, if one party feels very strongly about something, uh, it can't be enacted over their protest unless a majority or a supermajority of their own members vote for it. Uh, so in this case, it's the Unionist Party, which is seen as a very socially conservative party. Uh, this is the party that advocates maintaining ties with the United Kingdom, as opposed to the parties that advocate independence for Northern Ireland or joining the Republic of Ireland. Uh, so uh, the Unionist Party had a few defections on the vote. Uh, there wouldn't have been a majority if there hadn't been a handful of Unionists who voted for the marriage equality measure. But uh, they had raised the point of parliamentary privilege that they're allowed to say that because the overwhelming majority of their members were opposed, it couldn't be enacted. So we have this odd situation, uh, somewhat akin to what we have in the U.S. Senate, where if more than 40 members of the minority don't want a measure to come to a vote, they can block it uh, through a virtual filibuster process where they don't have to actually physically filibuster. All they have to do is signify that uh, more than 40 members, uh, and since the Republicans have more than, or the Democrats now have more than 40 members, they can filibuster. And previously the Republicans had more than 40 members, so they could filibuster. So it was very hard to get things through the Senate unless there was bipartisan support. Do we know what merit, the state of marriage recognition laws in Northern Ireland? Because they're sort of surrounded now by yeah. marriage jurisdictions. I, I think they were still not recognized. Yeah. Uh, but this, this will... You're just driving a couple yeah. little this, ways south. This will get, fall into place. Yeah. Uh, the other country in Europe where there have been developments to report is Italy. And Italy is a, is a very complicated case because uh, Vatican City, of course, is in Rome. And uh, the Catholic Church plays a big role. Uh, in Italian politics, mainly behind the scenes. Uh, the current government has indicated an intention, an intention to try to win passage of some sort of civil union law. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Italian uh, couples have been going overseas to get married and coming back and asking that their marriages be registered in municipal registries just like anyone else uh, because Italy has in the past broadly recognized uh, marriages performed overseas for Italian citizens. Uh, and some of the mayors of the larger cities uh, where there are well-organized gay communities and there's some gay political power, uh, some of these mayors have said yes, including the mayor of Rome. Uh, but the national government was opposed to that, and uh, the minister of the interior had put out an order to the prefects, and I'm not sure how all these different titles uh, relate, but the prefects that they should cancel these registered marriages. And uh, in some cases, the mayors had only authorized the registration after a local court had ordered them to do so. So uh, there's a, an interesting situation here where the Minister of the Interior filed a lawsuit against some of these mayors. And the case came up before the Council of State, which is a body that is the chief administrative court in Italy. And the uh, Ministry of State issued a ruling on October 26 that said same-sex marriage is against the course of nature 
and therefore cannot be recognized. And therefore, the same-sex marriages performed overseas cannot be recognized, and uh, therefore held that the Ministry of Interior was within its rights to order the cancellation of these registrations. Now, the registrations didn't give people a lot of rights. What it meant was they had a certificate from the municipality saying that they were married overseas, and they might take that to an employer to somebody to seek some kind of uh, voluntary recognition of the marriages, but it didn't really count for a whole lot because most law is national law, not local law. But there's another complicating factor in Italy, and that is Italy has been sued before the European Court of Human Rights because it doesn't provide any kind of legal recognition for same-sex couples. Now, the European Court of Human Rights at this point in its developing jurisprudence has not been willing to say that same-sex couples have a right to marry under the European Covenant. But they have advanced to the point of saying there is a consensus now in Europe that same-sex couples are entitled to some form of legal recognition for their relationships, uh, registered partners, domestic partners, civil unions, the Pact Seville in France before they adopted marriage equality recently. So they have said to Italy in this case, you guys better get on the stick because you are not providing at the national level any recognition for same-sex couples, and you're obligated by your treaty obligations under the, under the uh, European Convention to do so. Uh, so there is a measure pending in the Italian parliament which the government supports to adopt a civil union law of some sort. Uh, and there is talk that it may come up for consideration in 2016. Uh, so Italy is one of the last holdouts, really, among the major uh, countries in the European Union, uh, apart from the Eastern European countries. Right. Italy is one of the last holdouts. Uh, we, uh, we had very early on, we had uh, some of the Scandinavian countries. Uh, we've had France, the U.K. now. Portugal, coming, Spain. Portugal, Spain, coming online now, the Republic of uh, Ireland. So the major countries, Germany, we have civil unions, uh, the uh, the uh, government is not ready to take that step to marriage yet in Germany. And in Eastern Europe, uh, we don't have very much Well, I saw show. Evan Wilson was in Germany recently yes. trying to spread the word. Yeah, Austria also. We yeah. have we have civil unions in Austria. Uh, so Central Europe, yes. we're not so established yet. But uh, we're, we're getting there in Scandinavia. Uh, Finland is going to be legislating on marriage equality within the next year or two. Uh, and uh, we've got it already in Norway and uh, Denmark and Sweden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well with Western Europe at this point. Uh, but Italy is a problem point, and uh, Northern Ireland is a problem point. All right. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll stay in the relationship recognition area and discuss how a New York judge handled the dissolution of a Vermont civil union. All right, we are back discussing how a New York judge recently handled the dissolution of a lesbian couple's Vermont civil union. He wasn't quite able to treat it exactly as he would a marriage, was he, Art? No, and, and this is a, a somewhat unusual case. This is a couple that as new things came along in which they could uh, form a, a union of some sort, they would adopt them. So they originally lived in uh, Indiana, and they had a sort of a civil union ceremony there that was a private ceremony. It had no legal significance. But 
they considered themselves to be united. Uh, they subsequently moved to New York. Before they moved, one of them happened to own the house that they lived in, and she sold the house. Uh, that was Deborah. She sold the house uh, and uh, with the idea that uh, down the line she might use the proceeds to buy a new house for them. So uh, they moved to New York, and uh, in 2003, they went to Vermont and contracted a civil union. There's no residency requirement in Vermont at the time, and New Yorkers were going there to do that in order to have some kind of official, some government issuing a piece of paper saying that they were a legally recognized couple. So they got the civil union and uh, continued to reside in New York. And in 2004, Deborah used the proceeds from the sale of her Indiana house and her, some other resources to purchase a house in Rochester where they lived together. The house was bought in Deborah's name. Uh, since New York at the time accorded no legal recognition to their partnership and uh, presumably in terms of, of financing a purchase and things of, of that sort, uh, it would not be uh, unusual for one member of a couple to purchase the house in their own name. Now, under Vermont law, if they were to go back to Vermont to dissolve their civil union, one of them would have to, at least, would have to establish residency there. But under Vermont law, real property acquired during a civil union is considered un civil union property. And so upon the dissolution of a civil union, a Vermont court would distribute civil union property. But of course, this, this house was located in Rochester. So one might question whether a Vermont court would have any jurisdiction to do anything about it. Uh, but proceeding forward, of course, uh, the next thing that happened was marriage equality became available in Canada. So Americans could go up there. There was no residency requirement, get married, and come back. So these women went up to Canada in 2006, and they got married. <clears throat> okay. And in 2008, we got our first appellate decision in New York recognizing a Canadian same-sex marriage. Okay. So uh, clearly their marriage would be recognized at that point in New York. Uh, they never got married in New York, but they, they had a marriage that was recognized in New York. Right. But – as, as uh, Justice Richard Dollinger in this case observed, almost exactly five years to the day after they got married in Canada, uh, Deborah filed a divorce petition in Monroe County Supreme Court, that's Rochester, to uh, dissolve the marriage. And in her divorce petition, she asked the court for equitable distribution of marital property, but she excluded the house because, as she said, uh, subsequently in the litigation, the house was purchased by her before they got married. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, you might ask, what is the key date here? Well, she filed for divorce after New York passed the marriage equality law, which made it very clear that you could file for a divorce in New York uh, from a same-sex marriage that was performed elsewhere. Uh, so uh, she claimed that the house is not part of the marital property and not subject to distribution. And uh, Christine, uh, her spouse, filed a cross-petition for divorce, but also included in that a request that the judge dissolve the Vermont Civil Union. And she said the House is civil union property, and so the judge should be able to distribute the House, uh, treat it as part of the property to be distributed under the equitable distribution law because it was acquired after they became civil union partners. And Deborah comes back in and says, no, no, the bright line test in New York under the equitable distribution provisions of the domestic relations law is the date of marriage, 
and the date of marriage for us is 2006 in Canada, and the date on which our marriage was recognized in New York, well, you might argue about that. You know, uh, there was appellate precedent recognizing our marriage as of 2008, when the appellate division, actually in a case from Monroe County, uh, recognized a Canadian same-sex marriage of a lesbian couple. Uh, clearly, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Oberga, in Windsor, rather, seems to have acknowledged that their Canadian marriage would have been recognized in New York uh, at the time uh, that uh, it became relevant because of the death of, of a spouse. Uh, and certainly, with the passage of the marriage equality law, we have uh, same-sex marriages are recognized as of 2011. But the New York Court of Appeals had never, prior to 2011, recognized a same-sex marriage from another jurisdiction. We're talking about appellate division precedent. And furthermore, the status of Vermont civil unions under New York law is somewhat questionable. Uh, there are some cases where there has been a certain level of recognition or comedy with respect to particular issues, but not with respect to the issue of uh, distribution of real property assets in a dissolution. Uh, and some New York courts have taken the position that under their broad equitable powers they can dissolve a Vermont civil union, but that the divorce law in New York does not apply to Vermont civil unions. And the court's authority to distribute property derives from the domestic relations law and the equitable distribution provisions that deal with marriages. So uh, Judge Dollinger, the parties couldn't work this out. You know, Christine insisted that the house was part of what the property to be divided, uh, and uh, Deborah insisted that no, it was her own personal property as far as New York law went because it was bought before. And uh, ultimately, Justice Dollinger said, look, we have a gap in the law here. The legislature really has to address this. The Marriage Equality Act on its face doesn't. It merely says that same-sex couples uh, can marry in New York. Uh, Same-sex couples who married outside of New York will be recognized in New York. They'll be treated the same as different sex marriages. But he pointed out, first of all, a Vermont civil union was not a marriage. Uh, and several years later, Vermont legislated for same-sex marriage. But at the time, all they had was civil unions. And the Vermont civil union statute says expressly that a civil union is not a marriage. And because it doesn't have all the rights of the marriage, and in particular, it would have no federal rights. Uh, so he says, if you're asking me to you know, give comedy to the Vermont law and you're asking me to distribute under my powers under the equitable distribution law, I can't treat that as marital property under their Vermont civil union. It's not marital property. And he says for purposes of the New York law, the key date, which he referred to as the linchpin on which New York's entire system of marital property distribution rests, is the definition in the uh, domestic relations law itself, which says that property acquired after the parties get married is marital property. And these parties got married in 2006. The property was acquired in 2004. Sorry, out of luck. I can't touch it. And he says, this leaves a rather anomalous situation because I'm going to dissolve your civil union, but I'm not going to distribute your civil union property because my power to distribute civil union property has certainly not been established by any appellate uh, authority in New York. And he, he really invites the legislature. He says, look, guys, this is a transitional problem. He says, this problem, especially in light of Obergefell and national marriage equality, this problem will cease to be a problem at some point in the future. We're in a transitional period. 
maybe if the legislature could see Claire to do a little fix in the law and tell the courts expressly, how do you deal with domestic partnerships from other states? How do you deal with civil unions from other states? Because the question is going to come up, as it did in this case, and it would be nice to have some legislative guidance because as of now, the equitable distribution provisions limit what a court can do. Now, it's possible this will get appealed to the appellate division. We'll see what happens. It's possible cases will come up in other parts of the state and judges may take a different position. But for now, uh, we have this case. It's a, a new decision. Uh, just emerged on uh, October 23. Hasn't been a lot of comment about it yet. Uh, I think it may receive some attention in the legislature, but we have a divided legislature. It's difficult to move things through quickly. And, you know, now that we have marriage equality, perhaps there would be no reason for the Republican majority in the state Senate to oppose doing something to recognize uh, civil unions and domestic partnerships from out of state. Although, interestingly, the Court of Appeals, our state high court, has said they have to uh, – you have to accord comedy to parenting rights obtained from a Vermont right. civil union. But he didn't see an analogous situation here for no. property. No, because, you know, uh, with parenting, kids are portable, but real estate isn't. Mm-hmm. And the real estate is in New York. Yeah. And saying that Vermont law should have anything to say about the ownership of New York real estate through the Civil Union Act is a stretch. Yeah. You know, I, I can see the argument being made. I think there, there are strong arguments on both sides. Yeah. And he even said so. He, he, he summarized uh, the argument made on behalf of Christine for comedy here. He said she makes a very strong argument, but I really think I'm bound by the statute here. I'm not going to stick my neck out, basically, is the subtext. Uh, And uh, really, the legislature should address this question. So uh, here's a shout-out to our LGBT uh, senators and assembly members that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Add it to the list. Uh, We'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a very funny ruling arising out of some plastic surgery done for a New York gay couple. We are back for our Of Note segment to discuss Hill versus Steinbrecht, wherein a New York judge ruled that before and after photographs of a man's butt used by his plastic surgeon without his patient's consent are not identifiable as a matter of law. How can that be, Art? Well, I think any good butt man will tell you you can tell one butt from another. But uh, this, is, this is sort of funny. To me, the, the funniest thing about the case is that, you know, by the spin of the wheel, it landed before a lesbian judge on top of everything else. <laughs> a member of Legal, Cynthia Kern. Uh, so uh, these two guys, Doug Hill and James Moritz, uh, uh, they're not married, uh, but they, uh, according to, the, to uh, Justice Kern's decision, they are in a romantic relationship, and they allege that they are well-known as a gay couple in Chelsea. Well, they wanted to get some work done. It sounds from the opinion that uh, Hill wanted to uh, get some pec implants, uh, and uh, Mr. Morris wanted to get his butt tightened up. Uh, So they went to Dr. Doug Steinbrecht of Gotham Plastic Surgery, and uh, as part of his procedure, he takes before and after pictures, and he got them to sign consent forms, but the consent forms did not explicitly authorize the use of these pictures for commercial purposes. and they did not authorize uh, the dissemination of any pictures of these guys showing their faces. And uh, Mr. Hill also insisted that 
his tattoos. He has some body tattoos. He didn't want those. In other words, they didn't want pictures getting out there that people could see that were identifiable as them. Uh, but a few years after they had the procedure done, they discovered their photos online. Uh, evidently, they recognized them, even though the judge said some of them couldn't be recognized. So they brought an action against uh, Dr. Steinbrecht for violation of the New York Civil Rights Law, which prohibits anyone from using someone else's image without their written consent for purposes of commerce or trade. So certainly advertising would count as commerce or trade. Uh, the problem is, in order for the statute to be violated, the picture has to recognizably be of the person. And uh, in the case of Mr. Moritz, one of the photos he was complaining about was basically a picture of his his butt, <laughs> you know, before and after. Mm -hmm. And uh, Justice Kern said, well, I don't think there's anything particularly distinguishable <laughs> That would, you know, someone looking at this picture would say, oh, that's, that's James Moritz's butt. <laughs> so she said, that's not actionable. Now, some of the pictures were actionable, even though they didn't all show faces. Uh, there's a, uh, a torso shot of Moritz. It runs from the chin to the ankles. And she said, well, it is at least plausible that uh, he would be recognizable by someone familiar with his pattern of chest and facial hair. So uh, she refused to grant summary judgment uh, on that. She said it's a jury question whether that picture is recognizable as Mr. Moritz. So now I'm, I'm imagining here a Manhattan jury. Now, a typical Manhattan jury has some gay men on it, yes. maybe some lesbians on it. And so they're going to be sitting there looking at these pictures, <laughs> trying to figure out, and, and you know how are they going to do this? Is Mr. Moritz going to have to come into the courtroom and take off his shirt so they can decide whether he's identifiable from the pictures? It's a good question. Yeah. And similarly with Mr. Hill. Now, some of the pictures with Mr. Hill showed his face. And as to those, uh, Justice Kern granted summary judgment in his favor because clearly it's identifiable. But there are also pictures, torso shots of him that didn't show the face, but they showed the tattoo. So she said it's also a jury question whether the pictures with the tattoo are recognizable enough so that he can bring this action under the civil rights law. They'd also asserted a lot of other claims, common law and statutory claims, but Justice Kern found that the case really boiled down to the civil rights law. So uh, I think that's, that's kind of interesting, uh, the challenge that may be posed to a Manhattan jury if this case doesn't settle, of figuring out whether these <laughs> pictures that don't show the guy's faces nonetheless uh, are distinguishable enough to uh, be the basis of a, an invasion of privacy claim, which is what this really is. I think with the rise of these uh, apps, um, there, there's a strong argument that you can identify people without the face. Yeah, <laughs> I think, well, you know, the habitues of grinder and scruff and manhunt and, and such things, uh, I'm sure there are butt men out there who will say, <laughs> I can recognize a butt from a mile away. <laughs> but <laughs> will any of them be on the jury? And who's going to volunteer to be on this jury? Quick, hands up. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to wrap it up. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in December.